Hey, smart mamas. Welcome to the Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups podcast, a podcast about balancing mom life and work life and everything in between. Being a mama is a hard job. We are three nurse anesthetists reaching out to support and encourage other moms with hectic and chaotic lives. I want to be a nurse anesthetist. No topics are off limits. Relationships, finance, mental health, work. And we aren't sugarcoating anything. No way or way. This is real life, real moms, real advice. And we want this to be interactive. We want to hear from you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Welcome back to an episode of Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups. I am here with Ellen. Hi. We have a guest on today. Her name is Alex Pudwell. I'm sure I didn't say that right. Pudwell. It's we cool. just asked to. <laughs> Al- Alex Pudwell. That's all right. Um, Lacey will be hopping on here soon. She's has a teething baby at home, so we all get that. Alex is a CRNA in Sioux Falls. Yep, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And she has an interesting story we're going to talk to her about today. She has a child with special needs. Is that correct? Yep. He was born with uh, congenital CMV. So his case is actually, you'd consider mild compared to a lot of the stories that I've heard. You wouldn't guess by his first six weeks of life that he was a mild case, but we can kind of go into that as much as you guys like or yeah like tell us how you know pregnancy went and like when he was diagnosed and and even what that means I mean I know we've all been out of school so I don't I'll just start with our story first then we can talk a little bit more about CMV but so normal pregnancy he was my second I had a almost two-year-old well just had turned two-year-old when he was born So normal pregnancy, normal 20-week ultrasound, everything started going into labor four weeks early. And so went to the hospital, tried to stop the labor, didn't work, stayed overnight, ended up having him at two in the morning. He was born, so we had NICU there because he was before 36 weeks, so they were there anyway, and came out covered completely in petechiae and what she called a blueberry muffin rash. Had never heard of it before. Also, he had an enlarged spleen and liver, so his belly was very big. And undetectable sugars, platelets were in the 7,000 range. And so our neonatologist that was with us was fantastic. She came, she knew right away based on the rash alone that it was a textbook case of uh, congenital CMV. So they sent off all the labs for that, pretty much rushed him away. They laid him on my chest for about a minute, took him right off. So that was kind of the first time I realized something wasn't normal or wasn't going to go as we had planned. And then, so my husband, he's a respiratory therapist at the hospital that we were or that I gave birth that too. So he knew pretty much everyone in the room. He works with a lot of them. They took baby. He followed them to the NICU. Then they went to deliver my placenta. This was kind of step number two of a mess of a day. Well, they got most of it out. There was a 
decently large portion, they call, I think they said like a quarter of it, it had started to scar itself onto my uterus. So they pretty much had to scrape it off of the wall. Of course, this was the baby I decided not to have an epidural with. And so that was a terrible decision in hindsight. (laughs) But you had had no idea. No idea. No idea at all. And so um, I've learned with CMV after the fact that it's passed through the placenta and what it can do is essentially prevents those nutrients from going to baby because your placenta almost kind of dies. It, a lot of the, a lot of them will have smaller kind of shriveled up placenta. It sounds like if they have it bad enough and then baby just doesn't get the nutrients, baby comes out small. I guess my son's name's Sam. And so he came out, he was five pounds, 12 ounces at 35 and five. So he wasn't too small after. So I finally, once they got that placenta out, I had to stay in labor and delivery for another hour or so before they'd let me go see him over in NICU. And so during that time, I did exactly what they told me not to do, which was Google Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, everything about congenital CMV that I could. I... I'm almost embarrassed to say that the only thing I even remembered from four years of undergrad, a year or an accelerated nursing program, and then my uh, anesthesia program, the only thing I remembered is that it caused hearing loss. And so that's all I knew. So as I Google and start to read all of these worst case scenarios of microcephaly, brain bleeds, echogenic bowels, Lots of, lots of disabilities, uh, scarring of retina. It, I was pretty disheartened really fast. And so I'm sitting here reading all these bad cases and wondering, I don't even, how did this happen? How did my perfectly fine baby at 20 week ultrasound and that we had followed up with every OB as normal, normal heart rate, normal everything, except for the premature labor, have this happen? And so that was kind of the beginning. And then, so it was probably, it was probably about three, four hours after they had gone to NICU because it took almost two and a half hours to get the placenta out that I finally got to see him again. And he, I didn't get a good look at him before, but he was very bloated. He had gotten, so with his platelets being so low, he had gotten a unit of packed red blood cells, cryo, and like five packs of platelets already. And he's barely six hours old. So he's, they've got him on a non-invasive pressure support because all of the stomach contents, how big his liver and spleen were, he couldn't expand his lungs enough. So his breathing was fine, but he just needed that help keeping his lungs open. And as a Mom coming in and seeing your baby hooked up to all those monitors when you really expect absolutely none of that. Like everything about this pregnancy was going to go fine. Everything was fine. You know, no one ever told me different. So it was a big shot to walk in and see all that. And I just kind of broke down when I first saw him and hello. (laughs) So then the infectious disease doctor came in and kind of talk to us a little bit about congenital CMV. So congenital CMV is a virus that almost everybody has had by the time they are 40. It is 
well, what was it? it was between like 50 and 80 percent that you will have CMV at this time, especially if you have a younger child. Um, young toddlers at daycare are the most at, are usually the kiddos that'll have it and pass it along. If you're healthy, you have nothing. You have no symptoms. You have no, you don't even know you have it a lot of the time. It, or if you do, it comes about as a common cold. And so what we kind of assume happens, I must have gotten it sometime in, later in the third trimester, which is why he might have been a little more symptomatic when he was born and why now he really isn't as affected as a lot of the kiddos that'll get it during that first trimester are because it can really prevent uh, or it stalls and pre prevents normal brain development is a big thing too. So that's why a lot of these kiddos have such severe disabilities, um, mental disabilities, vision, hearing, kind of lost my, where I was going with this, but it's a big long story. And so I don't know how to tell the quick version of it. <laughs> no, you're doing great. But it's basically a virus you get while you're pregnant and the baby contracts it. Yeah, so it's on, the only two, there's two groups of people that are adversely affected by CMV. Immunosuppressed, so any immunosuppressants, chemotherapy, transplant patients, HIV is another one um, that can have pretty bad consequences if you, they get CMV. The second group of people are, well, are an unborn fetus. And so being passed from a mother through the placenta to baby is, are the only two groups that really are um, severely affected by CMV. And can you only get it one time? It's just like so, a one. Yep. It's similar to like a herpes virus mm. it's in kind of that family. So you have a primary infection and that's you, you don't have any uh, antibodies built up at that point. And so that's kind of what. I think I had as well because most likely most transfers to baby are primary infections because you don't have those antibodies yet. So baby doesn't have those antibodies, so they can't fight it off. So I assume I had a primary infection, which is strange because I was 32 and figured at some point with the odds that I would have had it before, but I guess not. And then, uh, yeah. So at 20 weeks, everything was normal. Yep. You contracted it sometime after 20 weeks and at no point during any of your like other blood work, I guess it had to have been after 28 weeks because at 28 weeks, they typically draw that like CBC, the R, um, the RH. I feel which, like. Yeah. Which it wouldn't have shown in any normal blood work. They don't test. Well, in most places do not test pregnant women for CMV or antibodies for them. So really at no point would. Yeah, but her labs were normal. It was the baby. Yeah, all mine were fine. Yep. And, yeah, and so the heartbeat. The heartbeat was always fine. Measuring fine. Everything was fine. So you literally had like zero reason to suspect anything. Yeah. Yep. No reason at all. Terrifying. Yeah. Is that the CMV baby? Uh, no, this is Charlie. <laughs> my oldest. I was like, he flies around like my kids do. Yeah. I didn't even see him come in until he was already in front of me. Yeah. Um, so that's really, really interesting. 
I've never, and CMV, like the same CMV we always talk about, right? Cytomegalovirus? Yep, that's the one. <laughs> well, I just want to make sure I'm like not missing anything. Yeah. I didn't, Hi, I didn't Alex. think I knew it was so detrimental. Yeah, I had no idea either. Like, like I said, the only thing I could remember is that it could cause hearing loss, which could cause, it's actually the number one leading cause of sensorineural hearing loss that's not genetic. So if it's not a genetic reason for your hearing loss, a lot of the time it's undiagnosed congenital CMV. Because a lot of these kiddos can also be born asymptomatic. Sam obviously was born symptomatic. And so we knew right away, which really was a blessing in disguise because we kind of, I mean, we got him into um, all his eye and ear point or hearing appointments right away. We got him into birth to three, which is our um, programs uh, to get with like therapies right away. So he's been in physical therapy, occupational therapy, just started speech recently. He got his, he was, or he was also born with severe hearing loss. So his first hearing test, we knew in the NICU, he never jumped to anything. He really, he didn't have much response to any of the outside noise. And so we kind of knew it was coming. We didn't think it was going to be all his hearing, but they got him fitted for hearing aids when he was three months old. So he got his first hearing aids in January. He was born in October. Um, wore hearing aids out through the end of summer when we really were like, I don't think he's getting any benefit from this. And that's when we started talking about cochlear implants. We started looking into those and decided that we're our family is a hearing family. We've had great uh, resources through our school of the deaf that kind of gave us people to talk to, the other kiddos that have had cochlear implants placed and ones that haven't and just kind of how their life was growing up and everything. And we ultimately decided to get him cochlear implants. He got those this last December when he was 13 months old. And then he had them activated two weeks later. And it's been amazing to watch him. He started oh, making the B sound. So he'll go around going ba 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 ba. And yeah, it was just so awesome. quiet. The second they come off, he's silent. And so when they're on, he doesn't stop talking. And it's so much fun to watch him. And that was probably one of the hardest decisions I made with him. Just knowing like it's such a major decision for him to have to make at one year old right. for the rest of his life, essentially. Yeah. But you set him up for success for the rest of his life too. I hope so. And the lady we've been working with with School of the Deaf was super helpful. She's like, you know, if you do end up doing this and he doesn't want to use them, he doesn't wear them. And yeah. so that made me feel really good too, because I just kept thinking, oh my gosh, we're doing surgery in this little baby's head. And what if he doesn't even want him? What if he grows up and is like, I hate these, get these out of here. And she just made me feel a lot better about our decision yeah. and yeah. been helpful along the way. That's, that's really interesting because right now, like he can't decide for himself. So you are giving him all of the options. And when he gets older, he can pick which ones he wants to keep, which is really yeah. empowering. Um, yeah. What can you talk to us a little bit about like, Typically with CMV babies, what are the, cause you said right when the baby came out, yeah. the neonatologist, like, can I go grab him real quick? He's oh, yeah, yeah. out there. Yeah. I'll be right back. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Gotcha. Hi, 
Oh my gosh, he's so, so big. Cute. I was thinking no life would last longer, but it didn't. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I was just um, telling Lacey, so at, at birth was our original presentation, and you had said that the neonatologist, just from those signs alone, was able to very quickly diagnose what was going on. So can yep. you kind of tell our listeners, aside from like this splenomegaly, patomegaly, um, what is the blueberry rash? What else typically presents? And then, like, what are the long-lasting typical symptoms that are not reversible? So, most of us will know kind of what the petechiae looks like. He had, so your platelets are low. You're going to have those little spots. A lot of time you get them on that blood pressure cuff when it squeezes so much. You get these little bruises. And so that was covering his entire body. The blueberry muffin rash is also related to the low platelets. And so um, those are just kind of bigger spots. So if you see a blueberry muffin and you see those big blueberries, that's kind of what it looked like. So those were kind of splattered across his back. Oh, there we go. And so, yeah. And then, I mean, I went and... When I got over to the NICU and I saw his belly, it was really was huge. You could feel everything. Like I do not do a lot of things with babies. And so I am not great with feeling where things are. His were almost so big that they were protruding out of his stomach. Mm -hmm. And so you could see like the ledges where everything was. It was so big. And so those and along with the rash and the platelets are kind of the staple of a symptomatic congenital CMV child is what I've learned. Did not know that at the time. (laughs) Yeah. And what about in terms of like uh, the lifelong effects? Um, What is typical for a CMV baby, especially like at that point in development and fetal development? You know, everybody always says at 20 weeks, everything's there that should be there. So after that, you're fine. But obviously there have been some long lasting effects. So like what's typical, what can you expect to be around for the rest of his life versus something that, you know, is treatable, curable? That's the hard part. So the brain is very much rewirable as most of us will know. Um, So when he was born, he was born with a, we also found this later out on in the NICU, they did a brain ultrasound and he had had a bleed into his left ventricle. And so sometime in utero, he, cause they had noticed it was dissolving. And so they knew it wasn't a new one. It wasn't from birth or anything. So he had had a bleed at some point. Well, this bleed had caused some changes in the white matter in his brain as well. It's called periventricular leukomalacia. And so it's commonly found in very, very young preemies. Um, and then also any other sort of brain damage that can cause, or that can be found in kiddos. And so with that, of course, there I went to Google again and Googled all the possible things with that. And cerebral palsy is the number one symptom of that PVL. And so when he was very young. He was very much tight. He had his hands always tight. He had his arms in. He was just a very tight baby. And so, of course, that's all I think of. Um, Luckily, we, like I said, since we knew right away, we had 
them in therapies right away. We had PT coming to our house. It was before COVID, which was also nice because they still were coming to the house because when we switched to Zoom meetings with physical therapy, it's just not as helpful, (laughs) believe it or not. Um, And so we worked on a lot of stretches with him. We worked on a lot of repetition. And I mean, you saw him, he, you can't, if you didn't know he had anything going on, you would just assume like he's just behind. And so he is 17 months and he is, he started pulling up to a stand maybe about two months ago and just started walking along furniture about a month ago. And so he's behind on his gross motor, but really you can't tell. He takes a lot of extra repetitions of things. And so in therapies, we will do um, sit to stand, sit to stand, sit to stand. So you can tell like the normal pathways that a baby would take to learn how to walk, to learn how to do other things like that. It doesn't come as easy for him. You can tell Um, even when he does try to walk along things, he is very uncoordinated. And so I, I don't have a lot to compare it with. I just really have my first kiddo that I can compare it with. And it was so much more natural with Charlie than it was with Sam or is with Sam. He still struggles with a lot of things. Um, but like I said, he really is on the mild range when you look at the broad spectrum of it. Since he did most likely acquire CMV during the third trimester, Like you said, his brain was pretty much already formed and he had everything he needed pretty much cooked, I guess to say. And it's the kids that have the most severe disabilities are the ones that get it during that first trimester, during that brain development, during um, that important time for other organs to be developing and things like that. So I can only really talk about our own experience, but from other stories I've heard of other families with kiddos that have had congenital or that have congenital CMV, having it earlier on, you definitely have a lot more disabilities with that. Wow. Do we even test like our patients for that? I mean, would there be a precaution sign? There are very few. Uh, I know I have never seen one in my own OB. I know some people post things that are like, oh, we found this up at the OB today, but I've never seen one at mine. They don't, it's not a routine test on pregnant women to see if they do have antibodies prior, which is really unfortunate because it's very easy to prevent. And so when I was learning more about congenital CMV and finding out that I most likely contracted it from my toddler in daycare at the time, not uh, the best ways to prevent that. Like I don't, it's hard to say. So um, how do I say this? You can have a lot of mom guilt <laughs> from it. Every, every day we're in the NICU. I mean, it's gotten better. But it's still, like, to think that, hey, if I wouldn't have let Charlie drink from my water one time when he had a runny nose, if I would have washed my hands better after he, after I was changing his diaper, if I didn't give him a kiss on the mouth and just gave him a kiss on the forehead, 
Like would one of those times have prevented Sam from having all this extra work in his life? And yeah, it kills me deep down inside when I think about it like that. Seeing him do so well has made it easier. But when he was little and not doing much and in the NICU for, we were in the NICU for six weeks with him. So that was the longest six weeks of my life. (laughs) And it just seemed like there was no end in sight. And I had a very, very hard time knowing like I did this to him. And I know like my husband would attest to it too. He's told me a million times, he's like, you, you can't not kiss your toddler. And I totally understand that. But you just think you wonder if you had known, would you have been more careful? Would you wash your hands more? Right. I mean, that you, what if it would have been in the pandemic and we would have been cleaner and washing our hands better, would he have gotten it? You know, like I know daycare is cleaner now. I wash my hands probably a thousand times more than I need to, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of what ifs that really don't matter, but I always think about them. Yeah. It's like, you can't start going down that road because it's a slippery slope. Yeah, it is. And obviously you didn't willingly or knowingly do anything to hurt your baby. Yeah. But it's tough because you wouldn't, I was looking up symptoms of CMV and it's like a cold. Yeah. And I had no cold. I had my, or I had a stomach flu around Easter when I was pregnant which would have been like April. So I only would have been like nine weeks pregnant and that's it. I didn't have a stuffy nose. I didn't have a cough. I did not have anything. So I was completely asymptomatic. So really I had no reason to, I wouldn't have even known. Um, it has to be a new CMV infection during pregnancy, right? It can't just be that you had. It, it could be a reactivation. <laughs> that is very, very rare from what I found. It's like, pretty much one in a million. I don't know if that's exact, but it's something very minimal for a reactivation to cause because you still do have those antibodies. So even if you have a reactivation, baby can most of the time use those antibodies that you have and fight off an infection or prevent it. But yeah, most of the time, if it's going to pass, it's usually a primary infection. Have you found out at all from talking to anybody why they don't test pregnant women for CMV? Um, There's a lot of... The, uh, bills going into effect across the U.S. that are starting to try and make it more well-known. And so they are trying to make that a standard test for pregnant women or women of mothering age, I guess. And so you do know. And so you do know if you need to be more careful, if you do need to wash your hands more, stay away, or try not to get slimy toddler lips all over your glasses and but yeah and there's also a vaccine that I think Moderna is the one doing it right now that is in the research um, phase of starting to get some participants involved in that to start testing for a vaccine for it as well. Are they so Alex let me ask what would Like, let's say that you, there was a test and you had that test and and it did come back positive. Is there any treatment that they could have done for you to prevent it from passing on? Or is it once it's in you, it automatically goes to Sam? Yeah, it's, um, they do have treatment. Not a lot of places will do it because there's not the research behind it. As you know, there's 
not a lot of pregnant women that want to jump into research studies on things. And so with Sam, after he was born, they put him on a antiviral for six months. It's called Valgancyclovir. And so what it's supposed to do is, is uh, fight off that viral load that he's born with in order to hopefully prevent like the, in, the liver spleen issues, the platelets. And so he was on that for six months. A similar drug um, they have done with pregnant women as well. And I think they do some sort of IVIG type therapy too, but it's all pretty much experimental. And I know there's some uh, women that I've heard talk in our group about um, having it and whether or not it's actually worked for them or they just, because you don't always pass it. If you have a primary infection, they don't really know why some kiddos get it and others don't. But you don't always 100% pass it if you do get it. So whether it was the therapy, medication therapy versus it just didn't pass, it's kind of hard to know too. Yeah, or viral load or, you know, yeah. who knows. I wonder what this is going to show kind of after this pandemic, what, you know, moms, pregnant moms with COVID, how that's going to play out. Sorry, Ellen, don't mean to freak you out. No, I mean, I've already been freaked out by everyone who's going to, so it's fine. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, the thing is, it's so much unknown that there's like zero yeah. control over it. I mean, literally, like this is, as an example, this is how crazy we are now. The other day, my <laughs> husband's like, so I had like a gestational diabetes scare and my husband's like, well, if COVID babies are supposed to be small for gestational age and diabetes babies are supposed to be large for gestational age and your baby should be average for gestational age. I'm like, <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> but the thing is, they don't know. Like they, they have no idea that some people yeah. say they come sooner and then other people say they don't. And then some people say they're small and then other people say they don't. I'm like, I feel like there's just not enough people and not enough studies in these or participants in these studies, even retrospectively yet, because COVID's not been around for long enough. Mm -hmm. But it makes you wonder, like, you know, could COVID cause this? And then right after COVID, I had a daycare cold. Now I'm like, did I have CMV? Did I ever have CMV? Who would know? I mean, that's the thing. You just don't know. Yep, I know. And it doesn't make for it pregnancy is so much more fun just not I know. knowing anything. I, just tried to not I know. Well, Alex, listening to your story, it, I mean, it, I can totally like feel with you, like the frustration of like this happened and, and why, mm -hmm. but it also like listening to it is like there's no way you could have prevented this like it doesn't always pass like it just happened and i'm sorry that that happened and yet like your son has shown amazing resilience and power in his growth and his development even at one yeah yeah he really has defied any odds we've gone to a couple nicu follow-ups with him and the doctors that saw us when we were in the hospital, they, they've all said they can't believe how well he's doing for how sick he was and how by the end of his six week stay, he had had 25 packs of platelets, wow. a few more um, 
red blood cells and a couple more uh, units of cryo. And so he had a huge PDA that they thought they were going to end up having to surgically close because of all that extra fluid. In the first couple days of life, he had gained three pounds. He was 5'12 when he was born. He was about 8'6", based mm. on the fluid wow. that he had on board with all those platelets and everything. And to see, like, I can look back at pictures of him then, and I can't believe this is the same kid. They he <laughs> waved to them. Huh? Hi. He's just he's such a little flirt. He has such a great personality. It's I I couldn't imagine him any other way. And so just and it shows the amazing things that the brain can do. Based mm-hmm. you yeah. just you especially when they're this young. Like I've been told that so many times. The same thing with cochlear implants. When you get them um, implanted this lot young. The brain just figures it out. It just knows what it's supposed to do. And it turns that sound. Uh, they have a much easier time getting learning the sounds and than a adult would getting a cochlear implant. Watching him learn to or start walking and even when he was crawling or even back when he was sitting up or rolling over, it's every little thing is a big thing. Yeah. yeah. I love um, that. Thanks. Yes. I think with my first, I kind of took for granted all this. And so when he came around and showed us how amazing a little man he was, I take every little milestone he hits a lot. It's a lot bigger deal. <laughs> yeah, I, yes. I can totally relate to your like mom guilt, you know, what what if I could have done this? Could I have prevented it? I mean, we are so hard on ourselves as moms. Yeah. I mean, you know, like say there's an accident on the road and, or you got in an accident on the road. It's like, well, if I would have left 10 minutes later or, you know, I mean. Yeah. If I wasn't rushing, if I didn't do this, but, but I mean, you can't play that game, you know, it's an endless road and it doesn't lead anywhere. Good. (laughs) Yes. Not at all. So Alex, how has, like your son's um congenital cmv like how has that shaped or changed like your whole family unit Mm -hmm. well like i said we don't take as much for granted anymore especially uh now that we see him growing and developing so much more with our we try to slow things down too. Life's a lot busier because he still he will still see he we do physical therapy once a week. We see occupational therapy. We've started speech therapy now with his cochlear implants. So life's much busier, but we've also tried to kind of slow down and let enjoy it more. Mm-hmm. To think um we could be in a different place at one point. I wasn't sure we'd ever even leave the NICU. And so to know that he's here and that he defied so many odds, it's just every day is a good day, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And so, yeah, he's got us to slow down and learn that every little milestone's a big one. So when you were in the NICU with your, you know, husband, Mm -hmm. how like that had to have been an incredibly intense and very stressful situation. Like how did you guys work through that? 
Mm-hmm. It was the longest six weeks of our lives. I think my husband would agree to that. Um, one of the things that made it easier on us, we had a very good infectious disease doctor. He had actually worked with, he had done a fellowship with a doctor out in Pittsburgh, I think it was, who specialized in congenital CMV. And so we had gotten really lucky that we had him on our team and he sat us down. Sam was probably seven hours old when he sat us down and talked through everything. He what what CMV was, what all the causes, what kind of tests they're going to do to see what a lot of the typical babies will grow up to be if they are this sick when they're young. The antiviral therapy, which is a very strong therapy. So they started IV there. And I mean, it comes with all these risks and he a few being so at one point when we were in the NICU, his absolute neutrophil count was zero. So this antiviral knocks down everything, but it also pretty much can wipe out your immune system. So for a while, he had to be getting shots to build up his own white cells even. But he stressed the importance of this antiviral with um, it showing the possibilities of not restoring hearing, but preventing it from getting worse, which in Sam's case, he had severe profound hearing loss to begin with. So we really didn't think it was going to give him any hearing back, but it was just going to make it so it wouldn't get worse. And then also it can prevent some of the symptoms from getting worse. So it hasn't necessarily been studied a lot, but it had shown that they have neurological improvements with it. So in Sam's case, where he did have that brain bleed and then large ventricle, he, like, maybe if we hadn't done it, he wouldn't have as great an outcome. I don't know. That's another one of those fun one-ifs that we could go down a rabbit hole with, too. But he definitely made our NICU stay much easier for us, having no, giving us all that background and everything that we could ever want to know. No. <laughs> Andy working there too. He worked with a, he is a respiratory therapist. He goes on a lot of those flights with those neonatal uh, nurse practitioners. So having people around that actually knew us and knew Andy and they were always checking in on us. They made it so much easier on us as well, but it was hard, especially having Charlie at home who is a brand new two-year-old and we all know two-year-olds can be Mm -hmm. a handful in themselves. So I tried, since I was on my maternity leave, I tried to be at the hospital as much as possible. Um, Andy would kind of do the night shift and I'd go home and sleep and he'd come back around 10 midnight sometime in there. And then we just rinse and repeat in the morning. I'd show up in the morning. I'd try to do all this stuff for him and uh, be there most of the day. And then we'd switch at the end. Charlie would go to daycare. And so we just kind of tried to keep life normal for him. I know one of the saddest times I had, it was a bad day. I think he had pulled out his pick line. We found out his neutrophil count was zero and that he might have some immunodeficiency syndrome. And I was in, I just pulled in the driveway and Charlie ran out to come see me and I'd obviously been crying and he looks at me and he just goes, mommy. And he just starts bawling. And so it's like, 
all my heart's breaking in for both of them because you can tell like he knows he he might only be two years old, but he can tell something's up. He knows his little brother's not home. He'd always ask where he was, and we do FaceTimes back and forth for whoever was home, and then we'd be like, "Oh, here's your little baby brother Sam." And I mean, just not having him home for six weeks—it's a long time for a two-year-old. And he had only ever met him the day was it the day after he was born. I think it was Sunday. I had him at 2 a.m. on Sunday, and I think he came later that afternoon. And that was the only time he saw him in real life. Otherwise, it was just videos for the first six weeks of his life. And so you could tell, like, he he knew something was up. <laughs> and it was hard to try to keep it normal for him. I think it would have been much easier if Sam was our only child at that point. But uh yeah, they can always really have to it. work hard to keep everybody <laughs> going. So I just want, I don't want people to be afraid of it because it's not super common. It is more common than most of us are aware of, but to be aware, you need to be aware of it. I think one, or I want to say it's like 9% of women are aware of congenital CMV. And you would think for, the six years I worked in the ICU, nursing school, undergrad, anesthesia school, why do I only remember it can cause hearing loss mm -hmm. when so many detrimental effects can happen with congenital CMV? I think OBs and primary cares even need to educate their patients and know, yes, this is a possibility, but as long as you're washing your hands, you're if you're pregnant, you're avoiding big wet open mouth kisses with your little toddler just do a kiss on the cheek for nine months they'll be okay yes you can but just try to avoid as much as possible try to keep your own drinks when you change their diaper wash your hands it's really it's a very preventable virus if you know about it the problem is that people don't know about it and so my i want to get out there and tell my story because I don't want another person to have to go through what we went through. And so I know a lot of states are also trying to incorporate congenital CMV into the newborn screen because a lot of those newborn screens contain all these weird metabolic diseases that no one's ever heard of that are about, that are almost never found while CMV is found. And so if you are one of those asymptomatic kiddos, all of a sudden they're not responding to sound or not talking and you don't know why. Well, if you had to have that newborn screen, you might know that your child's at a higher risk for hearing loss. And so just to know that, just to be on top of it and make sure your kiddo's not missing out on certain things, being aware of congenital CMV and that it can happen and that it's out there is I think very important. And I know why I'd like to tell my story. I love that, Alex. <laughs> How do you know the stats on that? Like one in X amount? I wrote a few of them down. So 91% of women do not know anything about congenital CMV. And then one in 200 children are born with congenital CMV each year. Wow. And of those, one in 10 
are born with lifelong disabilities. You know, it's interesting that this is so prevalent and yet like we really don't know much about it or anything. And yet like we we don't eat ham sandwiches for nine months because of a very rare, you know, listeria that could maybe cause, you know, so for nine months for every pregnancy, you don't eat a sandwich. But yet like this is very preventable if you know it exists, but you most people don't know it exists. Yep, you don't clean the cat box. You don't eat. Mm-hmm. Yep, you don't eat meat. You don't eat seafood. You don't or raw meats. You just. But here, you wash your hands. If you're just aware enough and you can wash your hands, you don't really. You're not avoiding things. You're just being more careful. Yep, so, sharing drinks with your kids, like that's a huge, like as hard easy as thing is, to implement. You can't leave anything sitting out. They'll find it. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, they talk about a knowledge gap. So the example that's been given is, so you have the number of kids, one in 200 that are born with congenital CMV. And out of that percentage, only 9% of women know. There's this huge gap in the number of cases versus the people that know. Because if you look at something like Down syndrome, the number of cases versus the people that have heard of Down syndrome and know what comes along with Down syndrome, it, there's no gap. There's the exact same number of people that know about it and have heard about it that and cases a year. When you look at CMV, there's a number of cases and a huge gap of where people know. This is, no one can see what I'm doing with my hands right now, but there's just a big gap in knowledge yeah. that's missing. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your story because it's something that we don't hear about that's common, but not common enough, apparently. Yep, it is. I'm glad yeah. to. Yes. Glad to tell it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Alex. This is very informative, and hopefully, our listeners will, you know, I'm sure they will appreciate your courage in sharing your story. And so, thank you for that. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks for sharing that sweet boy, both sweet boys with us. They were so cute. I'm surprised they only ran out a couple of times. I thought <laughs> sure they'd be out here the whole time. I tried to hide in the back room. <laughs> yeah, they always find you. Always. They do. They know. <laughs> okay. So for our listeners, if you guys want to follow us on Facebook, you can find us at um, Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups. We are on Instagram at Hey Smart Mamas. And you can find us each individually I am STL underscore injector. Lacey is. So I'm Ms. MS Lacey Lee and Ellen. I'm at Ellen Loletta. And Alex, if our listeners want to connect with you and share, you know, just connect with you online, where can they find you? Sure. At AA Pudwell, P-U-D-W-I-L-L. She's in our mom group. You can find her there. Yes, I'm in there too. That's how I heard about these guys. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for chatting with us and sharing your story. I know there's going to be a lot of moms out there that hear this, that relate to it, and they might be following up with some questions. Yeah. Any questions at all, I'm happy. I like to be, I consider myself an open book, so ask away. Yeah. I hope some change comes of this, like from a, you know, a legislative standpoint. Yeah. I know a lot of places are working on them, so it's hopeful.
It's the one good thing about going through something really hard. And when you come out the other side, you can help someone else who's going through it, you know? Absolutely. Yep. So, okay. And if you haven't uh, subscribed, you can go to iTunes and like, rate, and review us and subscribe. And you'll be notified when new episodes come out. So if any of our listeners would like to suggest a story or be on the podcast themselves, please contact us at any of those social channels that we had just said. And we love, love, love it when people reach out and have a story to share. And we would love to give you a platform. So please contact us. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, you can email us, scrubcapsandsippycups at gmail.com. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you.